Good morning, Bethel. And also, welcome to any of you who might be visiting with us here this morning. It's good to have you here. We are in the midst of a, a series, a several-week series on the local church, and it's entitled Faith in the Local Church. Um, has twofold meaning on purpose. Um, first, do you actually believe in the local church? Do you have faith in this institution that God established, what He says about it? Do you believe what God says about what the church is supposed to be, why He established it? Um, it is an institution. It's also an organism. It's a living thing. It's the people, not the building. Um, do you believe in the local church? Um, do you have convictions in that regard? And then secondly, if we do believe what God says in His Word about what the local church is and what it's supposed to be, what does that faith look like as it's worked out um, in the context of our local church? Um, so over the last two weeks, we've looked at two metaphors for the church that God uses in His Word. Um, first of all, body parts with a head. So Jesus is the head of His body, the church. And so we, if you're a Christian, you're a member, not in the sense of you know, I can pay my dues and become a member at Costco, but actually you're an organic member, like an, a necessary, indispensable member, just like I really need my elbow and my kneecap and so forth. So we're all members of the body in that sense, and we are therefore committed to one another. There's implications to each of these metaphors, and we've tried to tease those out each week. Last week, then, we looked at the metaphor of the family. So God is um, the head of his house and Jesus is our older brother. Um, we have a heavenly father and we then, as Christians, are brothers and sisters uh, in the faith. So there's implications for how we love one another, how we're committed to one another um, for life, in fact, for eternity. So this week we're going to look at a third metaphor and that's the church as the bride of Christ. And just like there were implications the last couple weeks, um, there are also implications for this metaphor as well. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your great love that you demonstrate in that while we were yet sinners running away from you, you sent Christ to die for us. And Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your love, for your bride. I pray that you would give us hearts to perceive how wide and long and high and deep and to know your love that surpasses knowledge. And Spirit of God, we thank you that you love to pour out the love of God into our hearts. You love to share that love with your people and cause us to experience it, um, to overflow with it so that it overflows on others, that we would love others with the love that you've poured out into our hearts. Um, so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see and to savor all the more this morning 
your great love for us in Christ. Help us to see the implications of the fact that if we are yours, if by your grace we are yours, um, what are the implications for us in relation to you and to each other as a church? Help us to see what those are and help us to believe them, believe what you say about the church and help us to live it out. Um, And Lord, I pray that you drive away distractions, even canine distractions. Um, (laughs) You are able to do that. Even if he doesn't stop, we can focus. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that your word would um, fall on humble, receptive ears and hearts this morning, that we would be attentive to what you, our heavenly husband, the one who has loved us with an everlasting love, what you have to say. Um, I pray that we would be attentive this morning and and really hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So I think it was about 12 or so years ago, um, I went to Vermont to perform a wedding uh, for a couple that was in our college ministry. um, And so went up to this wedding, and, you know, the rehearsal is the night before, so Friday night, it's one of these old... New England churches, if you've been there, you can maybe picture these churches. Um, Pretty simple. I don't know how old this building was. It was really old, but it it was straight back, and that door was right out to the outside, okay? So there wasn't much of a lobby or anything in the back. It's just straight back. There was a balcony, um, but kind of typical old New England church, a lot of character. So I was kind of tag-teaming this wedding with the pastor of that church, I think it was that church, um, or at least um, the kind of childhood pastor of, of one of the couple, one, one members of the couple. <laughs> it was either the guy or the girl. I can't remember. I'm having trouble saying that. Um, so anyway, the pastor's wife was going to be singing a solo, and she was going to be singing a song that maybe some of you have heard of um, called How Beautiful. So there's a line that goes like this, How Beautiful the Radiant Bride who waits for her groom with his light in her eyes. Okay, so that kind of set the tone for the weekend for me because the groom had asked me to give the message, both of them together, but um, they had asked me to give the message on the beauty of Christian marriage. And so I'd already been thinking a lot about the true beauty of Christian marriage and that it's this little reflection of the ultimate romance. It's supposed to be a little reflection of the ultimate love story. So at the beginning of, of the wedding ceremony, <clears throat> I'm standing, you know, a step or two um, above the groom. He's, he's right here, and I'm, he's, he's probably like that, so he's kind of in my line of sight. And um, after the wedding party came through, there was a dramatic pause, and the trumpet sounded, which was like, whoa. Um, if you know how it all ends, you know, with the trump sounding and all. Um, So the trumpet sounds, the doors open, it's a bright sunny day, so the light just comes in through the the doors in the back, and, and, you know, there's this radiant silhouette, um, this glowing silhouette of of the father and his daughter, the the bride-to-be. And I'm watching over the groom's head, and as soon as the doors opened and he saw his bride-to-be, he took this deep breath in. He just swelled, and he started to bounce. 
on his toes. And I just about lost it because I was soaking in these thoughts, you know, in preparation for the message I was going to be giving. And as I reflected on that in the weeks to come, actually, I was confronted with my lack of faith. I had to ask myself the question, do I really believe in the love of Christ for his bride, of which I'm a part? So if I were to ask you this morning, how does God feel about his people? And you individually, if you're a Christian, what comes to mind? You know, not just the right answer. I mean, like, if you stop and think, average week, operational faith here. Indifference? Maybe that's about how he feels about me, given my track record. Like, puts up with me, but probably there's like this low-level displeasure just below the surface, and it wouldn't take much for him to get really impatient and annoyed and irritated with me. So what do you think of when you think of the love of Jesus? How strong is it? How, is this word ever enter into the vocabulary? How passionate is it? Does passionate ever cross your mind? Well, at that time, I had a hard time embracing the idea of God's passionate and joyful love for me. But let's not project our ideas onto God. Let's let him speak about the way he feels about his bride, the church. First, just listen to this text. It'll be over before you get there. Isaiah 62, 3. You, the redeemed people of God, shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal crown in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called My delight is in her, for the Lord delights in you. For as the bride, this is scripture here, folks, so Isaiah 62, 5, for as the bridegroom rejoices, rejoices over the bride, bouncing on his toes, swelling with excitement, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or how about Zephaniah 3.17? Do you believe this? I, I have trouble believing this sometimes. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We need to believe what God says about his bride, the church, about us if we are in Christ. <clears throat> so what we're going to do is trace the lines of this metaphor as it's revealed to us in Scripture. And to do so, we need to start back at the beginning. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2. And we'll see the first marriage. So Genesis 2. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. There's one in the pew in front of you. Um, and Genesis 2 is easy to find. It's on page 2. So right at the beginning there, and one change for what it's worth on the outline, if, if you use the outline, if that's helpful for you. Um, <clears throat> point three, sin and redemption, is going to actually be a part of point one. So we'll move from point two, the forever marriage in Ephesians 5, right to point four. <clears throat> Hopefully that's clear enough. 
So the first marriage, Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good. After he had said, It's good, good, good. All of his creation, very good even, after he created man. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him among the animal kingdom. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Adam says, when God presents him with his bride, first wedding, first marriage, God presiding, Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, that kind of language might be a little bit unclear to us. What does he mean by this? We don't tend to talk about that or talk like that. Um, What Adam was saying was, this is my family. Okay, these animals that just paraded in front of me, they're great and all. In fact, I really like that one that I just dubbed dog. I think he's going to be a good friend to me for a long time. But none of them are a suitable helper. None of them are my family. So this bone and flesh phrase came to be used actually to refer to family relationships. So for instance, later in Genesis when Jacob went looking for a wife and came in contact with Laban, his mother's relative, Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Kinship, family relationships. Okay? It also came to be associated with allegiance. Okay, so in 1 Chronicles 10 and 11, it's recounted how Saul, Israel's first king, was unfaithful to God and was replaced by David, right? Then in 1 Chronicles 11:1, 1, it says this, All Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Like, we, we're with you. We are going to be aligned with you. We're going to give you our allegiance. There's a covenantal commitment here in a sense in times past even when Saul was king it was you who led out and brought in Israel and the Lord your God said to you you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over my people Israel so then this very interesting thing happens there in first chronicles 11 all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron and David made a covenant with them this family kinship covenant before the Lord and they anointed him king okay 
So they declared their allegiance to him, and David made a covenant with them. So what does that all have to do with this metaphor that we're considering this morning, Christ and his bride, the church? Do we really need all this Old Testament history lesson as background? Well, in one of the most important passages in the Bible on marriage, Tyler read from it a little bit ago, Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul quotes part of that Genesis 2 passage and then makes an amazing interpretive comment. So flip back there to Ephesians 5. On page 979, Pew Bible, if you're using that. And look at verses 31 and 32. So Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Here he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then here's the amazing interpretive comment. This mystery of two becoming one is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what in the world does that mean? Well, in a sense, what he's saying is that all of human history is about a marriage. Okay, so... God made Adam. It wasn't good for him to be alone. He made Eve, created the first marriage. They entered in the first marriage covenant. Why did he create marriage in the first place? Did he say later on, wow, that marriage thing, I can really get some mileage out of that. I think I'll I'll talk about my relationship to to my people that way. I'll use that. It's actually the other way around. Christ in the church was in God's mind all along from the beginning, so he made marriage to be the little foreshadowing, to be the picture, the echo, the reflection, the image, the little scale model. So all along, the idea was, the plan was, the story was going to be for a marriage of God with his people. Okay? And the climax of that, obviously, is found in Christ. And the church, and the reason is because right from the get-go, this marriage that was supposed to be a reflection of God with his people, it wasn't a perfect marriage. They didn't live happily ever after, right? So Adam and Eve, they doubted God's goodness. Is he holding out on us? The serpent, you know, sows some seeds of doubt, And so as a result of their sin, of the fall, not trusting God, death, guilt, shame enters, and it's been the pattern ever since. Okay? So that original cosmic rebellion is not just a little thing. It was rebellion of the highest order. It's it's actually a refusal to embrace God's rule over their lives, but it was also like cosmic adultery. Okay, sin is unfaithfulness in the highest order. It's a refusal to embrace God's loving husband rights over our lives. Okay, so at the heart of sin is this unbelief in the goodness and trustworthiness of God, just like 
what Adam and Eve bought in the garden, the, the bill of goods that they bought in the garden. It's an exchange of the true and glorious God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. It's kind of like this. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that, that used this as an illustration. Um, <clears throat> you know how in, in Romans 1 it talks about how we, we've all um, traded the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator? Well, what we're guilty of, we're kind of like a foolish fiancé that, let's say the, the, the couple is separated, but the, the man wants her to know that he's totally committed, so he sends the engagement ring by FedEx, and she receives it, and it's just what she wanted. The ring is perfect, and she's admiring the ring, admiring the ring, and finally she just says, I, I've got everything I want. Like, no need to go any further, no need to, you know, continue on with, with the wedding plans, like, thank you very much. This is what I want. I just want the gifts. I don't want the giver. You would say, that's insane. The ring is just a token. The love is actually the fiancé that sent it. Well, that's all of us. That's what our sin is. We want the gifts, but not the giver. So do you see how sin is this kind of rejecting the love of our husband, okay? So, um, here's the thing. Why, why does the Bible give us all these different kinds of metaphors for what sin is like? Through the Old Testament, the, the, the sin of the people of God is talked about as, as whoredom and infidelity, even, you know, well, like prostitution, Okay? The reason is because we are so prone to think lightly of our sin. And so God gives us different images and metaphors so that we can really taste the sinfulness of sin. So if this is one of the metaphors, this helps us understand what sin is like. You get it? That's why sin and redemption are going to be under point one. So think about it this way. Imagine that there's a married couple that's in your group of friends. The husband's incredible. He's a man's man and he's a hopeless romantic. He's realistic and reliable. He's generous and wise. He's impeccable in his character. He's sincere and authentic. You know, I know we, you know, women wish this man actually existed, okay? So every woman could only wish to find a man half as good as this man. And then there's his wife. Now, she looks good enough on the outside. It seems like their marriage is fine, but you know, she's made you a little uncomfortable here and there in small ways. Hard to put a finger on it. Overall, she seems nice. Well, then one day your friend calls you in tears. And he's just found out that his wife has been secretly involved with another guy for over a year. So what's the, what rises up if that? I mean, this is a good, good friend of yours. This guy's a good friend of yours. You love this guy. And you hear, to add insult to injury, who the guy is that she's involved with and you can't believe it because he's such a pig and a snake. <clears throat> I mean, the guy can look and, and smell and talk a good game, but he, it's, it's all a sham. Everybody knows it. He's deep in debt. He's totally narcissistic. He's a liar and a con artist. He's got a shady past, even a record. He looks strong, but he's actually unstable, weak and needy. I mean, it turns out that over the last year, she even pawned some of their most special gifts that your friend had given her in order to pay for the hotel rooms where the rendezvous were. 
When that ran out, she started taking money out of his wallet. So, I mean, if you really knew this couple, if this was real, the judicial sediments of injustice and dishonor would be running so strong right now. We know how ugly that is. Well, guess what? That's us. That's our sin. We are that woman. God is like that husband, only better. And sin is like that pig of a competitor, only worse. So the wages of that kind of sin is death, just like God warned Adam. So what Adam and Eve did that day, just like all of us, was they cheated on the perfect husband, had an affair with the pig, with the snake. Okay? So again, lots of shocking language in the Bible about the nature of sin being like whoredom. Read Ezekiel 16 this afternoon. It's shocking stuff. Okay? That's who we were. Now, again, we see these metaphors. We have these metaphors. God gives them to us so that we can taste and see and feel the sinfulness of sin, that we don't treat it lightly. But also, these same metaphors end up helping us to taste and see and feel the sweetness, the goodness of redemption. Okay, so if that's who we were by nature in our sin, using the gifts of God to buy our lovers, if, that's, if that was us, then for God to come after us in Christ, to bring us back, to bring us home, to reconcile us, for God the Father to choose us and to arrange the marriage with His Son. How sweet is that arranged marriage? This is an arranged marriage to exult in. God could have literally said, fine, to hell with you. But this is the perfect husband, perfectly loving and merciful. So after many centuries of making it clear that no human ruler, not even King David, obviously could ever be good enough or strong enough or great enough to give us the happily ever after that we all long for, God sent his son, true king of kings, to pay the debt of our wicked unfaithfulness. And so in his love, Jesus condescends and pursues us in our rebellious harlotry. We're running the other way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, He became incarnate. Think about this. This is why I gave the little history lesson through Chronicles and whatever. Jesus became incarnate, taking on our bone and flesh. God in Jesus says, they're my family. I am and will be your kinsman redeemer. I will take on flesh and blood, flesh and bone, in order to make you mine forever, to make you my family, to win your allegiance again, to be your loving ruler and eternal husband so that you will live with me forever, happily ever after. Okay, so that's what the Bible refers to as the new covenant, sealed by the blood of Jesus, and then consummated when Jesus returns to make all things new. So we enter into that new covenant relationship by repenting of all of our prostitution, turning from our unfaithfulness, and trusting in Jesus as our Savior, and realigning our allegiance to Him as our King and as our love. 
So God had made Eve and presented her to the first Adam, and, and he said, this is my family. She is a helper suitable to me. And this pointed forward to the day when he was going to remake his bride by his grace and present her to his son, the last Adam, the second Adam. And in the gospel of Jesus, God says, this is my family. I will forgive her wretched unfaithfulness. I will buy her back from her slavery. And we will live happily ever after. And we haven't even talked about Hosea. But if you're familiar with the book of Hosea, do you see how this is not an isolated metaphor? This is a strongly present one in the Bible. So, point two, the forever marriage, Ephesians 5. Um, Ephesians 5, likely the most significant marriage text in the New Testament. And we tend, and in one sense rightly so, to focus on what God says to wives and husbands, and only secondarily noting what it says about Christ in the church when we read these verses typically. Well, let's, let's actually do it the other way around. Let's note primarily what it says about Christ and his bride, the church. And so pick up there again, Ephesians 5, and note what this says about Christ and his relationship to his people, the church, his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. He wants to get her ready for himself. That's amazing. He's going to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, because we are members of his body. And then that quotation from Genesis 2 and he says that it refers to Christ and the church. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the marriage. It's the picture of marriage because it actually is the marriage. Okay, so Christian marriages are simply like a little child's crayon copy of the original. Okay, so this gospel love, the True, ultimate, eternal marriage, God with his people through Christ, that's actually the archetype. And every Christian marriage is to keep its eyes on that original so that we can draw a good, clear, beautiful reflection with our lives. A tiny copy. The only way that copy is going to be clear, the only way it's going to be Attractive, beautiful, is if we really keep our eyes on and study the original. Okay, so the picture that is your marriage, if you're married, might be a bit rough, shaky in places, but it will faithfully reflect the beauty and glory and grace and love and forgiveness and faithfulness and joy and peace of the marriage if you keep your eyes on Jesus. 
Well, just as Christian husbands and wives ought to look carefully at Christ and his bride so that they have their cues for how to live this out in their marriage, well, so we, the church, are to show the world the love of Christ as our husband. We, as the church, should so keep our eyes on our faithful bridegroom that our lives clearly show that there is no greater love than the one who's laid down his life for his bride. So, I mean, where in the world are you going to go to see the love of God in Christ if you don't see it in the church? So we need to believe these truths and we need to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can be shaped by these truths and reflect these truths to the world. Jesus died to make us his own, his bride. He paid the bride price and purchased us. Okay, so now we're going down to point four. We are Christ's bride, betrothed by the Spirit. Flip over to um, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 11. Again, we're tracing this theme as it runs through Scripture, and it's probably present more than you'd realize. So 2 Corinthians 11 on page 969, if you're using the Pew Bible, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes to the Corinthians there, the church in Corinth. I feel a divine jealousy for you. So he had planted this church. There was some trouble in the church. There was some rebellion in the church. And so he's concerned about them. He's writing to them. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Okay, so first of all, this is really encouraging. It's encouraging in light of what we know of the Corinthian church prior to Paul's coming, Back in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, don't you know that sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, you know, they won't inherit the kingdom. And such were some of you. So you can imagine a church that's filled with people who have really shady sexual past. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Do you believe this truth? If you have a shady past, this is worth, you know, fixing your gaze on and seeing, I can be purified in the eyes of God and made to be a pure virgin betrothed to Christ. That's awesome. That is the forgiving grace of the gospel. Okay? So, no matter what you've done, you can be a pure virgin betrothed to Christ. We belong to him. We're his, and he is ours. Okay? And that husband's love is just incomprehensible in how wide and long and high and deep it is, and it's directed toward you, toward us. Okay? So listen to uh, this quote by Ray Ortland. The gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space ultimate reality is romance 
There is a God above with love in his eyes for us and infinite joy to offer us, and he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. So when we are converted and the Spirit of God dwells within us, God gives us his Spirit like an engagement ring, sealing us for Christ for our wedding day. It's awesome. There's nothing that can separate us from his love, okay? But secondly, in this context of 2 Corinthians 11, this is sobering. It's a call to fidelity. These Corinthians are flirting with disaster. It's just like what James warns of his readers in James 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And Paul, caring for this church, saying, I've got this divine jealousy for you. You belong to Jesus. You need to turn from any competition that's got your heart's affection and be Christ's alone. Okay, so once we're in relationship with Christ, sin is also talked about like adultery. God's a jealous God. So he won't let us keep running away. He's going to come and get us so that we come back to him. That's why there's warnings like 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't take those members and make them a member of a prostitute. Okay, because he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, so you don't want to join Christ and a prostitute. So Jesus cares about his bride. He loves his bride. He's going to be fiercely faithful and proactive to do whatever it takes to present her to himself. That's what he lived and died for. Remember Ephesians 5 again, that he might sanctify her. He gave himself up for us that he might sanctify us so that he might present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ortland again. He's got a book actually called Whoredom. And it's the theme of God's unfaithful wife all the way through the scriptures. It's a really great book, but listen to it again. True religion is marital in nature. What sort of husband would look at his wayward wife and dismiss her adulteries by mumbling, Well, as long as she and her lovers don't shake the bed and make too much noise, as long as I can get my sleep, what's the big deal? It's only marriage. No one but a knave would own such a sentiment. So how can we trivialize our covenant with God, the covenant of marriage? It is the marriage. Okay, so if we believe all this, if we see this strong metaphor, this theme running through Scripture, we believe it. It's one of our convictions about what we are as the local church, what does that look like as it gets worked out? Point five, faith in the local church. So if we hold Jesus in high regard because he is the perfect husband, he is perfectly honorable, he is worthy of all of our respect and allegiance and trust, if we hold him in high regard, we will hate our sin and forsake it. It's a call to purity and fidelity in that sense. 
Because if we have little regard for Jesus, we will have little concern over our adulteries, over our unfaithfulness. So one of the implications of this metaphor is is a call to all of us to fierce fidelity to Jesus, a call to forsake all other gods, all other competition for our heart's allegiance and affection. So what's, what's coming in mind right now? What do you need to deal with? What idols do you need to throw down? The Spirit of God loves to cultivate the intimacy that is supposed to characterize this relationship. So the Spirit of God brings that stuff up. So when that stuff comes up, you don't turn up the radio. You don't stuff it down trying to get it under the water like a beach ball. You deal with it. Look it in the eyes because the whole point is it's killing your relationship. So fierce fidelity. If, if, if you were married and you start, you know, getting some vibes from somebody at work, what should you do about that? Toy with it? Or take some serious action to kill it? Well, if there's some emotional attachment starting to form somewhere, spiritually speaking, you don't toy with adultery, you kill it. So again, implications. If we believe this, this is going to work itself out in a call to fierce fidelity, dealing with all the competition in our own hearts for allegiance and affection, and also we're going to help each other do the same. So I need this kind of accountability and encouragement. Do you need that kind of accountability and encouragement? We sung, come thou fount, prone to wander, though Lord, I feel it. Okay, so we need each other to help each other stay faithful on the path. It's one of the reasons we have home groups. It's one of the reasons you need to be in a home group. It's one of the reasons you need to work at your home group if it's not working out so well right now. Okay, we know some of them are not as healthy and strong and vital as they should be. Okay, well, let's work at it because we need this kind of Hebrews 3 environment where take care lest there be in any of you a sinful unbelieving heart that falls away from your husband from your love falls away from living god but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin okay so this fierce loving fidelity is true of jesus's love for his bride And by His Spirit, that love has been implanted in us. Implications here. Track with me here. Don Whitney says it well in a book called Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. Now suppose that the very Spirit of Jesus Christ Himself were given to dwell not only in the body of Jesus, like when He was on earth, but also in another human being like a Christian. Obviously then, like Christ, the man or woman who has been given the Spirit of Jesus would love what Jesus loves and died for, his bride, the church. You see the connection? If the Spirit of Jesus dwells within us, 
then the Spirit is going to want to shape our loves to be in line with Jesus' loves. If He loved and laid down His life for His bride, the church, and we have His Spirit within us, we are going to love the bride and lay down our lives for her. So His love is committed and durable. His love is not capricious or fickle. It's not indifferent or apathetic. Ours should not be. He's passionate about the good of his bride, and so should ours. His love is, listen to this, self-generated and free. It's not based on the loveliness of the object, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So similarly, our love toward those in the church is not driven, created by the loveliness of the object, If it is, it's not going to last very long because, you know, we're all a little ugly, definitely at times. So listen to a few quotes here. It is as if God were saying, until you learn to love this person, to put up with the mind-numbing annoyances, to forgive him for the same sin over and over and over again, to invite him into your home, even when he repulses you, until you learn to relate to this impossible person, you'll never know what it's like for me to relate to you. (laughs) thank God for those hard to love they are our mirrors okay so we must care about the bride do you care about the bride of Christ is that faith working itself out here at Bethel here's the other text that hit me when I was standing you know like right here and Dave was right here bouncing and swelling I think I had just been teaching through Philippians and right at the beginning Paul talks about how you know every time he thinks of them you know, thanksgiving and joy because he just has them in his heart and all of this. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with grace of me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says this, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ Jesus has affection for his church. And Paul has a Christ-like heart, so he has an affection for that which Christ has affection for. So is that working itself out? Do we believe this? And is it getting worked out in our lives together? Okay, in the gospel, Jesus took the vow. I, Jesus, take you, sinner, sinners, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to be my bride, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until, well, death, we're not going to part. That's the kind of heart that we need Do you see how we need convictions which are going to work themselves out in faithfulness, faithful love, horizontally? (laughs) This is a hilarious quote, but it's just all too true. Um, Peter Lightheart. Some Christians are rather like a man going through midlife crisis who dreams of a perfect woman to replace his aging wife. 
The concept of a perfect, invisible church is used to rationalize abandonment of what is, to all appearances, a sagging, wrinkled, visible church. Nowhere to be sure do the New Testament writers flinch from a full acknowledgement of sin and turmoil within the church. The apostles would have no doubt grimly nodded if told of some wit's suggestion that the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the rain outside, you couldn't stand the stench inside. Are you sometimes like a middle-aged man wishing for a trophy wife? Or you love the bride, and wherever God plants you, you're going to labor for her purity and maturity and growth and health. For richer, for poor, sickness and health. Read the book of the month. I was going to quote from it, I won't. It's all about this. It's great. Stop dating the church. Fall in love with the family of God. Another application. There you go. So, there's lots of ways that our faith in these truths need to be worked out in the context of local church. <laughs> can, I, can I kind of use a text out of context here? Sort of. Although, actually, I don't think it is used out of context. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. By passivity, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to help make this what it ought to be. Or by actively, you know, Criticizing. Do you see what I'm saying? Christ and his bride don't do damage to that, but rather, as we believe these truths, faith worked out, we are fighting for the oneness that we ought to have with Christ and the health and purity and maturity and fidelity that ought to characterize us as a church. So as we close... Um, Think about this question. It's one of the questions that kind of plagued me a bit. Um, It rolled around in my head for months after that wedding. And it was really helpful for me because it forced me to deal with how earthly-minded I was, how short-sighted I was, and how I needed to really believe the stuff that the Bible says about this reality of Christ and his church and my betrothal to Christ. So you know how the Bible talks about the return of Christ as the day when there's going to be the wedding feast of the lambs, the consummation, right? So what if you were engaged to be married and you weren't looking forward to the wedding day? So I'll let you just think about that. I had to think about that and say, what's wrong? If that was happening on an earthly level, what would be wrong? If that's happening on a vertical level, that I'm not looking forward to the return of Christ, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the party will begin, I will be united with my heavenly husband forever, happily ever after, 
what's getting in the way, and then you can take aim at that. And you can talk about it in your relationships, in your home group, or jump into a home group and get to know some people so you can wrestle with those dynamics. But we should be looking forward to the wedding day with great anticipation. Jesus is, just like that guy Dave, swelling and bouncing on his toes. Hopefully this will fan the flame of desire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So do you really believe in happily ever after? The wedding day is coming. We are getting ready. We need to get ready and we need to help each other Get ready for happily ever after. So may our faithful heavenly husband give us grace to work out our faith in his great eternal love in the context of our local church. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your love. Please, please cause us to go out of here with a greater sense of of how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us in Christ. Help us to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Fill us up with it. And Lord, show us what it should look like to work out this faith in our local church with the people that you have placed us with, we've covenanted together with to be a body, to be a family, and to be the faithful bride together until you return to sweep us off our feet and we rejoice with you forever at the wedding feast of the Lamb. pray that our heart would resonate with the truths at the end of your word. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And I pray, Father, that our heart would be to well up with amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So to you who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy, to you, O God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and husband, who gave himself up for us, be glory 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's bride said, Amen. You are dismissed.